0: is Diagnosis Glaucoma, with your hosts, Dr. Mona Colleen
1: and Dr. Harry Quigley. So here I am again on episode 30, talking with Dr. Pretty Ramaloo, the director of Glaucoma Center of Excellence at the Wilmer Eye Institute at Johns Hopkins and my boss. We're going to be talking about adaptations glaucoma patients can make for those important activities of daily living that they may be having trouble with, either because of their glaucoma or because of glaucoma plus other things. Because I think one of the messages from Dr. Romelu's research has been that it isn't just vision that gives people difficulties, and we have to take into account lots of other comorbidities. That means things that jump in there and also add to the problem that vision is causing to lead to an overall complex of problem. Now, in our other session, we talked about driving, Dr. Romelu. And I hear this all the time from patients whose families say, you know, grandma shouldn't still be driving. And grandma usually says to me, I've been driving for 60 years and I've never had a problem. And I only drive to the store on roads that I know. And by the way, if I give up driving, I'll have to sell my house and move to assisted living. And all of those are real problems that we understand. They're things that we want to help people to deal with. So how can glaucoma patients and their families make sure that they're safe to drive? Dr. Ramlou have you got any
0: of the initial answers to that kind of a question? Well, Dr. Quigley, I think in episode 29, you made the very nice point that relying on family to help you make these decisions is very important. Your family is going to have your best interests at heart. And as you mentioned, if you have to stop driving, then other people need to pick up the slack and it's not easy for them. So in the vast majority of cases, they're going to tell you what's best for you. Of course, there's other things that you need to consider as well. I think there's a few ways to deal with the whole driving problem and other problems as well. One is to say you're just not going to do it. If you're not going to do it, it's easier to make that decision over time. And so try and see that day coming before it suddenly arrives. So don't let somebody pull your license away. If you think that you're getting unsafe and if you know you have advanced glaucoma, start transitioning your life to one where you don't have to drive. Figure out how to use other driving services. Try and move somewhere where you can walk to a lot of things. Try and learn how to use delivery services that may be able to get you things. Try and build your social network of family and friends so that the things that really require you to drive don't require you to drive as often or at all. If you are going to continue to drive, you want to be very aware of whether you're really safe enough or not, and you want to decide, first of all, am I safe enough to drive ever at all, or am I only safe enough to drive in certain circumstances? What Grandma says is not totally wrong. There are some people who are in this intermediate zone that they can drive in a limited capacity and still be safe, but they don't want to be going on the highway to another state in a place they've never been before at 9 o'clock at night when it's dark outside and it's raining. So think about it. Sometimes it is very helpful to have a formal evaluation, somebody who's independent. In some states, this independent evaluation may need to actually report to the state what they find which may affect your license, sir, But I think if you're really unsure and you really want to do the right thing, getting somebody who can actually sit behind the wheel with you, a certified driving evaluator, and have them evaluate your driving and tell you whether you're safe can be very helpful in coming to a decision that you and others are comfortable with. We had an older family member who was driving and who didn't
1: want to give it up. And we suggested that maybe one of the driving services, whichever was present in your local area, Uber or Lyft, even taxi cabs, might be something. And she said, Well, no, that's gonna be very expensive. So I sat down with her and we did the numbers on her insurance for her car, the gasoline and oil, the car maintenance, and the purchase price, you know, taken into account over a seven or eight year period while she was driving the car. And it turned out she could take two or three trips a week on Uber and it was cheaper than having her car, and she'd be safe and air conditioned and sitting in the back listening to her iPad or whatever she was doing. So I'm afraid it didn't convince her, but at least I think that's something that people should consider. That might be a reasonable way to go. Now, are there assisting devices, or even how about self-driving
0: cars? Have you had any patients who are actually using a self-driving car, Dr. Rumlin? I don't have any, and I don't know that it's legal where we live to have a fully self-driving car. But there certainly are cars that are being made now, often unfortunately on the more expensive end, which help you out quite a bit, which tell you whether it's safe to turn into a lane, give you a camera to show you what's behind you, to tell you whether you're, when you're backing out that, that a car is coming by and you need to be aware of it. But we understand that some of the older cars and the cars that you might already have don't already have this, and that some of the models of cars don't have it either. There are other practical things that you can do, I think that you can get these mirrors that go onto to your rearview mirror, which give you a much broader field of view and allow you to see things that you wouldn't be able to see otherwise. And so if you have physical limitations as well and you have trouble turning your head, this is one way of getting around that. This is also true for the rearview mirror. There are inserts into that rearview mirror which allow you to see more broadly and give you a broader field of view. You are going to have to be aware that you want to maybe look around a little bit more than you normally would as well. So sometimes people understand that if they scan the environment more, that they can pick up things that they wouldn't have seen. So you don't just simply look straight ahead. You have to scan and look around some more. You have to be careful, though, because if you're scanning around constantly all the time, you might actually end up missing what's right in front of you. And there's some very nice videos that people have produced about people with glaucoma who are always looking around, and then end up almost hitting something which is right in front of them.
1: Yeah, I bought a car just this last year, and the first thing I noticed was it was beeping at me all the time. If I look to the side, it yells at me with a beep and says, keep your eyes on the road. If I change lanes without signaling, it beeps at me. And twice now this year, it has automatically slammed on the brakes when it thought I was about to hit somebody who had stopped in front of me. And I have to admit, one of those times I might have hit that person if the car hadn't hit the brakes for me. And my son said, well, dad, why don't you turn all that stuff off? You know, you can go in your settings and just turn it all off. And I'm thinking, maybe I'll just leave it on there because I actually don't mind the help. So it's not a self-driving car, but it's a additional instructing car. I have to admit, I have one patient who is using a car that largely drives itself. And he's someone who would not qualify to drive. But it's a physician who wants to go to and from work. And he goes during the 10 to 3 o'clock daytime period when it's not rush hour. He's never on an expressway, and as far as he's concerned, that's a safe thing for him. But as Dr. Romelu mentioned, it's not presently legal. We tell patients who are in this situation, I know you want to keep driving, but imagine that you got in your car, you backed down your driveway and ran over one of your grandchildren because you didn't see them. There's no feeling on earth that would make that better, And you have to consider what the stakes are, as well as the odds that something bad is going to happen. Well, a second subject we talked about in the last podcast was falling. And we heard that falling is extraordinarily common. I mean, I was amazed at the frequency of falls that you got people to record and how severe some of them were.
0: Yes. So after about three years, the majority of the people who we had in our study had fallen. So it was over 60%. And the number who had had an injury from a fall was about 40%. So this is something that's happening in the background all the time. And in fact, Dr. Quigley, I'm sure you see people come into your clinic with a splint or a cast. And I would say probably 80% of those times, they actually have that because they had a fall. And so you can see them all the time. And I'm sure many of you who are on this call or on this podcast would have had one yourself. So there are, fortunately, a lot of things that you can do to try and reduce this. The first is simply being aware of falls. I think just simply knowing that you're at a higher risk helps us change our behavior and maybe take a little extra time and a little extra caution to make sure that when we start moving around that we know where we're going and that we're safe in doing so. I think there's often a lot of stigma to some of the things that really help people with fall, especially those of us who have physical limitations or more advanced visual field damage. And unfortunately, that's the case, but I wish it weren't so. But there's really no shame to be had in using a cane, a white cane, if you really have very severe disease and you need that to kind of use your senses to know what's coming up. Or to use a a simple cane or a walker because your balance isn't good and you have physical limitations that might be compounding whatever visual problems you have. Or just simply because you lack the physical strength to kind of keep yourself upright on a consistent basis. So I would implore all of you to not have an embarrassment about it as we get older. All of us are going to have some sort of disability at some point or the other. So it's happening to everybody. And don't be ashamed.
1: I think that the patients who I see who've had a fall finally start using a cane. But I don't think it's the usually even the first fall. I think it's the second one or the third one. And the difficulty here is that one of those falls could be the hip fracture, breaking your hip, And having to have it either repaired or going through the self-healing that goes on in those of us who are elderly is a very, very big change in your lifestyle. And your friends don't mind if you're using a cane. Probably many of your friends are also using canes. And certainly a walker or the rolling kind of bicycle with the little basket in the front of it is a great way to get around your home environment. Because as Dr. Romelu mentioned in episode 29, The home environment is where more falls happen than anywhere else. But in the outside world, if you start to fall, the way in which you stop the fall is using your leg and back muscles. And therein is the reason why physical strength is very important. And Dr. Romler, didn't you guys study physical strength and that sort of thing as part of your overall
0: frailty work? It is. And certainly frailty is more common in people who have visual impairment And I think part of it may be the deconditioning that happens because people who have vision loss become less physically active. And so that's one of the big challenges with falls, is that it's not simply the fall which is a problem, but it's the physical activity restriction that happens either before or even after the fall. And so being able to avoid falling is something which is very important for allowing you to continue to lead an active and healthy lifestyle, which maintains your muscle mass and your strength. So it isn't just poor vision.
1: And it's awareness, it's muscle strength, it's balance. Boy, do I hear a lot from patients about having difficulty with their balance. In fact, at one point, we thought that I heard so much about that, that balance and glaucoma must be somehow related to each other in terms of causation, that they probably have the same cause. Because why would so many people have both the vision problem and the balance problem? Well, it turned out when we studied people's balance ability who didn't have glaucoma, and people who had glaucoma and studied their balance ability, we found that they weren't related to each other, which were both very common. So if 5% of people have one and 5% of people have the other, 5% times 5% is a lot of people, even though it's not something that's actually causally related. Another area we're talking about today is reading and what devices or steps the glaucoma patient can take if they're having
0: difficulty with reading that they want to do. So what do you advise? I think with reading, especially if you're going to read traditional material such as a book or a newspaper, it's all about the lighting. So, and this is actually somewhat true for falls as well. A lot of falls that are preventable, especially those falls in the home, is really a lot about the lighting. So you want to really have a light that's bright that's coming from straight overhead so it's not causing a glare in your eyes and blinding you because it's pointing right in your eyes. So it's coming from behind you or just over your head and focusing right on the material and really making it nice and well lit. And it's amazing how much easier it is to read for all of us when we have that proper lighting. Things really do stand out and the contrast of that text really makes it a lot easier to see. So I would really encourage that, both for reading and for falling. I think that a lot of times when the lighting is poor, we don't see the step clearly, or we don't see that obstacle on the ground that we can trip over. And so we notice that a lot of falls happen in areas such as the bedroom or the bathroom, and I suspect that a lot of them happen when people have to go to the bathroom at night, or when they're moving around in the dark because they don't want to wake up their spouse and they trip over something. So Make sure your lighting is good. At night, when you're by your bedside, have a flashlight. Be able to access the light bulbs from everywhere. And if you're reading, by all means, have a spotlight, a special type of light that goes right above your head that focuses right on the page. Now, beyond visual reading of standard books, we have a couple of things. We'll talk about
1: maybe computer devices, but just auditorily listening to things, listening like podcasts, like you're doing today, (laughs) or our book. Glaucoma, What Every Patient Should Know, has now been recorded. Dr. Kalim and I each read uh, alternate chapters of that book, and fairly shortly, that's going to be on diagnosisglaucoma.com as a free service that you can hear the book if reading it is difficult for you, if your vision is so poor that you can't read standard print. But Dr. Romelu, do you have patients who go to see our low vision service, and what kinds of things do they get there that might help them?
0: I think this is where our vision rehabilitation experts are really helpful to our patients. I think they have probably the most expertise in helping people read. And they do this by a number of techniques. You know, some of it is what I just told you, like kind of helping people understand the type of lighting that you need. Sometimes there's also simple commercial changes that you can make. So if you have a computer using techniques such as zoom texts. If you have a Kindle, being able to switch what we call the polarity of the text, so in other words, instead of reading a black letter on a white page, to read a white letter on a black page can be quite helpful, although sometimes you don't really know how to make that happen. And so it is often helpful to go to an expert who can show you how to do this on a number of different devices in ways that you might not be able to figure out yourself. And I think sometimes if your vision is down far enough, it is necessary to make things bigger. And so they'll show you lots of different types of magnifiers that'll allow you to see the text large enough that it allows you to read them, either just reading a little bit of things in the grocery store or if you're sitting down to really read a book. We read in so many different contexts that sometimes there's not one solution for everything. And so we have to understand that just to fix our reading, we might need three or four solutions for reading a book versus reading a computer versus reading at the grocery store versus reading street signs, each of these may need a different adaptation.
1: There certainly are a lot of things that have happened in these technological computer assisted devices. When my Aunt Millie, who had macular degeneration, she didn't have glaucoma, but until she was 104, she was using her home computer assisted device. Now she had bought it 15 years ago when it cost, I think it cost her $10,000. Those devices are now down in the hundreds, and a simple camera, that can be put on a large screen of a computer, can do an awful lot to make something visible, to help you to see what you're doing, to sign your checks if you still do checks, or to help your family help you to move to doing all of this stuff that we do at the bank, for example, by doing it on an iPhone-like device or on an iPad. So technology changes, and if you've been to the low vision service three years ago, but you haven't been back since, I'll bet anything they've got some new toys that would be helpful to you that really might make your life a whole lot easier. Now, I know in another episode, it was episode 22, Pretty Tom Johnson talked about the future of stem cell work. We might talk a little bit about what's going on right now in artificial vision or some of the goggles things that are going on. First and most importantly, do you actually have any of those that are ready for prime time that patients are actually using in your practice?
0: We don't. And Dr. Johnson and others here at Johns Hopkins and other universities are doing active research to give our patients a better future and some uh, restorative therapies that uh, will allow them their vision to be better. But I think right now we're in a situation that if you really have substantial degrees of vision loss from glaucoma. It's very important that you try and deal with what you're experiencing on a day-to-day basis now and not simply hold out hope for something that's going to happen in the future. I'm not telling you not to hold out hope, but I'm telling you to also deal with the situation as it is right now. And so it's important to really see a vision rehabilitation specialist and try and make your life more functional so that you can lead a more complete and fulfilling life. That isn't to say that you can't keep up on all this research and to know about it and to participate in clinical trials when they come along or to be helpful and knowledgeable about it. But I just don't want people sitting on their couch waiting for it to happen and not doing the simple things that they can do to make their life better. Well, this has been a great discussion on how to deal with the real-life problems of glaucoma
1: patients. We certainly want you to check out many of the other podcasts on DiagnosisGlaucoma.com with Dr. Mona Kaleem, And the book Dr. Kaleem wrote with me called called Glaucoma, What Every Patient Should Know has information on these areas, has a chapter on low vision and other things. And it's available that you can buy it on Amazon, or you can read it free on the Wilmer Institute website on Johns Hopkins Medicine. Thanks very much. Hear you for the next podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, your mom says take your drops.